This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, Deadheads. Did I say Tuesday? I probably did. Anyway, happy day. As you guys all know, I was born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, which is a city that, unless you are from the area or were forced to memorize all of the state capitals in elementary school, you've probably never heard of. It's not a small town, but it's also not a big city. We do have a few claims to fame, though. Um, It was the birthplace of Burt Reynolds. It was the birthplace of Irvin Magic Johnson. Uh, actor Matthew Lillard, who I am obsessed with, and this fucker, Glenn Taylor Helzer, who would become the leader of a murderous cult known as the Children of Thunder, which is incredibly offensive to me as a Marvel fan. Did I say Marvel instead of Marvel? Probably. Again, we're off to a great start today, guys. Um, As a Marvel fan, I do not like the fact that the Children of Thunder was used for a cult name because Thor, as we all know or should know, is the god of thunder and his children would never be engaged in this kind of fuckery. Anyway, uh, this story that I'm going to talk to you guys about today, I heard about in a strange roundabout way. I was most likely working on a podcast episode or a story for one of the tours, but I was doing some work and I just had the ID channel on in the background. Uh, you know, those, those voices are soothing. Uh, and I heard words that caught my attention, which was Glenn Taylor Helzer was born in Lansing, Michigan. I think a woman might have said it, so she probably didn't sound like that at all. But, uh, you know, the mention of my hometown caught my attention. I recorded the episode, didn't think a lot of it, and then decided to do some further research to see if it would make a good podcast episode. And holy shit. So here we go. Glenn Taylor Helzer, who went by Taylor, was born in Lansing, probably in the same hospital that I was born in which gross, uh, on July 26, 1970 to, sorry. Um, so his parents' names were Gerald and Karma Helzer, but I wrote Gerlad, Gerlad, Gerlad. I transposed the A and the L and I like Gerlad a lot better than Gerald. So that's just what I'm going to call his dad here. Uh, The Helsers were devout Mormon couple from Sacramento who had moved to Lansing for Gerlad's job. Uh, He was a traveling insurance salesman. Ew. There is not a whole lot that is worse than an ultra-religious traveling salesman, except for maybe a murderer, which we will get there because this is a true crime podcast, right? So the Helsers didn't stay in Lansing for long. They had their son here, Gerlad and Karma, had their son, Glenn Taylor, here. And thank baby Yoda, they booked it out of town because by the time Taylor's brother Justin came along, just 18 months after he was born, they were already living in Montana. So probably just a couple years here in the capital of the Mitten State. Uh, The two brothers, Justin and Taylor, were best friends, which made their baby sister, Heather, who was born two years after Justin, the often 
neglected third wheel. So Taylor was the oldest. Justin was 18 months younger than him. Taylor was two years younger than Justin. Gerlad worked long hours to provide for his family and was rarely home. Karma suffered from mental illness that often left her unable to care for her children. Taylor, the oldest, was charming, enigmatic, and special, according to his mother. Justin was quiet, more reserved, lived in his brother's shadow, basically followed Taylor around like a puppy dog. And poor Heather was just kind of there, lost in the sauce. Um, the family moved all over the country for Gerlad's job during the 1970s. And then in 1981, they tired of living as drifters and they went back home to California, which is where all of the bad shit went down. In 1983, a financial setback forced the Helsers to move in with Karma's parents, who were even more religious than Gerlad and Karma. Karma's father quoted scripture to the family nightly and claimed to have once been visited by Jesus in the flesh. Interesting. Taylor idolized his grandfather, and he delved deep into the Book of Mormon at an early age. When he was 14, Taylor began hearing voices, and rather than see this as a possible sign of mental illness like any rational human being would probably do, uh, especially considering the family history, Taylor's family believed that he was receiving revelations from beyond and saw it as a divine blessing. So this solidified his mother's belief that Taylor was special, and from then on, he was the spiritual head of the family. Not only did his siblings obey and follow him, but his parents and his grandparents as well. Which made sense, since the adults were all a bunch of kooks, and Taylor was described as a charismatic born leader, a.k.a. a master manipulator. As is customary in the Mormon faith, Taylor was sent on a two-year mission at the age of 19 in 1989. Because he was considered a rising star in the church, he got to go to Brazil. And there, he became a god. The people of Brasilia, where he was stationed, absolutely loved him. They idolized him. They treated him like a king. He converted an unheard number of people to Mormonism because he was the type of person that it didn't matter what he was selling. People wanted to buy it. Uh, and this fame of sorts went to his head. As his mission progressed, his views on scripture became extreme, and he was convinced that the second coming of Christ was imminent, and he'd been chosen to communicate directly with God. Okay. By the end of his mission, he had stopped spreading the good word altogether, and he was completely obsessed with the coming apocalypse. Good thing he had a stable family to return home to to help him get his head back on straight, right? Too bad. Uh, Taylor returned home from his mission on November 20th, 1991. The following day, he began something called Harmony Impact Training at his mother's request, which I'm going to be honest with you guys here. I did not look this up independently because I was afraid to. A few weeks ago, uh, I looked up the cost of a Craftmatic adjustable bed online because I'm old, and ever since I broke my arm last summer, I cannot sleep lying flat, so I can't sleep in my bed. I'm sick of sleeping in the recliner. It makes my tailbone hurt. I'm just a mess over here. 
Anyway, so I look up a Craftmatic adjustable bed, almost as a joke, just to see how expensive they were, and now my Facebook timeline is full of nothing but old people in pajamas lying on bare mattresses in various positions of incline. It is like a geriatric porn preview over here, you guys. I'm not even kidding. So yeah, I am not going to Google some weird cult seminar and have that be the only thing showing up in my email and my Facebook from here on out. I don't even want to flip that radar. But basically, uh, from what I read, all of the things I read about this case specifically, Impact Training is a self-empowerment training course based on the philosophy that there is no right or wrong, there are only results. Mm, I don't know about that. Uh, Now, self-empowerment courses can absolutely be a good thing. People can get a lot from them. But for a megalomaniac like Taylor Helzer, the last thing he needed pounded into his head was, I can do whatever I want by any means necessary as long as the end result is worth it. That's a big oops right there. Taylor believed in the Harmony Impact course so much that he began pushing everyone he knew into it. Friends, family, probably the paper boy, everybody. Internally, Taylor was beginning to stray pretty far from the Mormon path, but externally he did his duty as a good Mormon leader and he got married in 1993. He and his wife had a couple of daughters and he became a successful stockbroker at Dean Witter, where he had over 150 clients. By 1996, Taylor decided that being a family man was boring, so he left his wife and he moved in with his younger brother, Justin. He began doing drugs and engaging in sex outside of his marriage. You know, that typical shit that every asshole does when he leaves his family. I bet you anything he was shagging his secretary too, because basic, basic. Uh, Taylor's family and the church told him to tone it down, but he was basically like, No, sorry, you guys sent me to a brainwashing seminar that taught me how to YOLO, so there is no right or wrong, remember? And he kept up with the fuckery. Things got so bad that he was excommunicated from the Mormon church after his sister sent a letter to the powers that be ratting him out. Which, why? If your brother's being a shit, cut him out of your life. Put him on blast on social media. But why tattle on him to the church? And it wasn't just Taylor. His brother Justin and their mother Karma were also excommunicated. And I guess, I mean, we all want a mom that supports us no matter what, right? But that may not be the best sitch when your son is a budding psychopath. In 1998, Taylor declared that he had been chosen by God to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. But not according to God's plan, as spelled out in the Bible and in the Drake song, No, he got to choose how this was all going to go down. Bringing about the apocalypse would cost money, though. So Taylor had his girlfriend, Carrie Furman, an aspiring model six years his junior, help him fake a mental breakdown so that he could leave his job at Dean Witter and go on disability. He used his disability payments to buy large quantities of ecstasy, which he then resold. He forced Carrie to get breast implants and start stripping, He then used her connections to other dancers and strip club patrons to build an escort service, which he would use along with his ecstasy empire to fund the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ? Christ? Okay. Uh, By any means necessary, right? 
So Taylor once convinced Carrie to do an at-home photo shoot and send the photos into Playboy. He was hoping that he was going to get his hands on some of that Hef money. But Carrie was not happy with this new path that her life was taking. When she met Taylor, he was a good-looking stockbroker who doted on her and made her feel beautiful. Now, he was a drug dealer who was building an escort service and was addicted to cocaine and meth. That is a pretty sharp left turn. And they weren't even together for very long. I think only a couple of years. So Carrie felt trapped. Uh, She was afraid of what Taylor would do if she left. And she decided that the only way out was to kill herself. So she began indulging in mass amounts of drugs, hoping to do exactly that. By the start of 2000, so less than two years after she and Taylor began dating, Carrie was emaciated and so weak she could barely get out of bed. Taylor, in a rare moment of humanity, took pity on her and told her, just go home. So she did. She returned to her hometown, and with the help of her family, she got clean and sober. And a few months after her escape from the clutches of Taylor Helzer, she got a phone call from Playboy. They wanted her to be the Playmate of the Month in their September 2000 edition. And no, I am not posting the photo on the website, you curious pervs. You will have to seek that one out yourselves like I did. She's pretty hot. Um, When Taylor found out that his ex-girlfriend became a Playboy centerfold because of photos he took, he was livid with himself for letting her get away. But he did learn a lesson. Never again would he try to manipulate a woman that posed a risk of rebelling, escaping, or finding the strength to stand up for herself. Enter Dawn Godman. Yes, guys, there is a person in this story with the last name Godman. Godman. A story about an evil religious cult and her name is Godman. You seriously cannot make this stuff up. Uh, Anyway, Godman first met the Helzer brothers at a Mormon murder mystery event for singles in Walnut Creek, California. (laughs) Yes, I just said that aloud. A murder mystery event for singles at a Mormon church. Carry on. Dawn was a 25-year-old single mother who'd been raised in an evangelical Christian household and had battled in recent years with drug addiction and suicidal tendencies. She claimed she was saved when someone gave her the Book of Mormon and had just recently converted to Mormonism when she met the brothers. Taylor reeled her in with his charming manipulatism. Is that a word? I don't don't know if it is. It's a word now. Um, But it was Justin who actually took care of Dawn, with some describing them as boyfriend and girlfriend. At the very least, they had some sort of friends with benefits situation going on. Taylor confided in Don that he was a prophet of God enlisted to take over the Mormon church and defeat Satan, and he honored Don by asking her to join him. He sent her to Harmony Impact Training, and when she was released, he convinced her to give up custody of her five-year-old son and move in with him and Justin. Together, they rented a three-bedroom home in Concord, California— Taylor Helzer anointed his group, the Children of Thunder, inspired not by Marvel, but by a biblical verse that refers to the Sons of Thunder. Because Dawn was a woman, Taylor changed it from sons to children. How thoughtful, yeah? Uh, He also implemented a set of rules, his version of the Ten Commandments that he called the Twelve Principles of Magic. In full-on cult mode now, Taylor revealed his mission— Codename, Operation Brazil. 
that is not even fucking creative. Anyway, uh, his plan was to take an army of Brazilian orphans to Salt Lake City to kill the 15 elders of the Mormon church. Yes, that's all. I meant every word I just said. That's a real sentence. That was a thing. Uh, Helzer, once he had defeated the elders, would then assume leadership of the world's 12 million Mormons, transform America, and defeat Satan. Pretty chill, right? Um, <laughs> this story is so crazy to me. You guys know I don't like cults to begin with. Um, but this is all so, so weird. I'm so out of my comfort zone telling you guys this one. Anyway, just as Jesus Christ began his ministry at the age of 30, so would Taylor Hauser. So the months leading up to Taylor's 30th birthday were pretty busy. He had his just, he had his Justin brother. <laughs> he had his brother, Justin, go out and purchase a nine millimeter Beretta. He had Dawn start buying ski masks, tasers, and handcuffs. And Taylor himself began trolling local clubs looking for a naive young woman to become his unwitting prey. He found that victim in 22-year-old Selena Bishop, a local waitress he met at a rave in early 2000. Selena was born on October 17, 1977, to Jenny Villarin and Elvin Bishop, which, that is a story all on its own, because Selena's dad is a famous musician, Elvin Bishop is a rock and roll hall of famer who got his start with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band in 1965, and he used to employ the Pointer Sisters as backup singers. I'm sure those of you who are super into music know what I'm talking about right now, but for those of you who are as lost in the sauce as I was writing this down, uh, you'll recognize this part, I think. I hope. Bishop is best known for his chart topper, fooled around and fell in love, which he wrote about Selena's mom, Jelly. <laughs> no. Okay. Bishop is best known for his chart topper, fooled around and fell in love. <laughs> Bishop is best known for his chart topper, Fooled Around and Fell in Love, which he wrote about Selena's mom, Jenny. You guys know the song. If you haven't heard it on the radio, you'll remember it from Guardians of the Galaxy, which I hope you've all seen. The first one's great. The second one, I don't know about that. Um, but you know, fooled around and fell in love. I'm probably editing that part out. So Selena's parents' parents' Selena's parents' love story literally inspired a love song, which is the sweetest thing ever. Alas, like most rock and roll marriages, theirs didn't last. Jenny wanted stability for her daughter, and Elvin wanted to continue touring the world, playing his music. So they divorced, and Jenny and Selena settled in Woodacre, New York. Not Whitaker, Woodacre. Wood Acre. And I said New York. <laughs> it's California. Oh my gosh. If you guys had any idea how much I am editing out of this episode, you'd understand why I'm laughing right now. It's a mess. I'm a mess. All right. Let's start that sentence over. So they divorced and Jenny and Selena settled in Woodacre, California, 
one of those small towns where everyone knows everyone. Jenny and Selena were very close, and when Selena grew up, they were best friends. Jenny was known as a generous, free spirit, whereas Selena had a reputation for being a bit innocent and naive. Jenny was a waitress at the Paper Mill Creek Saloon, and Selena was a waitress at the nearby Two Bird Cafe. They were both well-loved by everyone in town, and that included Alvin Bishop. Papa might have been a rolling stone, but his home base wasn't too far from his daughter. Selena attended his shows when he played close to home and often babysat for her much younger sister, Alvin's daughter with his second wife. So what did Satan Slayer Taylor Helzer want with sweet young Selena Bishop? Not daddy's rock star money. He didn't have any, or at least if he did, he wasn't sharing it with Selena. She was driving a 1984 uh, sedan, I believe. Um, but close. Uh, he used her to launder the ill-gotten gains that he needed to take over the world. Taylor met Selena at a nightclub, and the lies began immediately. He introduced himself as Jordan Taylor. The two began dating, and Selena quickly fell head over heels. Jordan was private, and he was reluctant to meet Selena's friends or family, including the person closest to her, her mom. Only a couple of Selena's co-workers at the Two Bird Cafe had ever seen Jordan face-to-face, until one day, concerned about how secretive her daughter's new boyfriend seemed, Jenny stopped by Selena's apartment when she knew Jordan was there under the guise of needing to borrow something. The friend who'd driven Jenny to the apartment sat in the car while Jenny went inside. After a few minutes, Jenny emerged holding a blouse that she would now need to find a reason to wear, and when the friend asked her what Jordan was like, she shrugged and said, He's cute. After they'd been dating for a few months, Jordan, Taylor, Taylor, Jordan, whatever, uh, convinced Selena to open bank accounts in her name all over Northern California that he had access to. She would cash and deposit high-dollar checks, and he would withdraw the funds. For her trouble, she got to keep a 20% cut. But she really wasn't in it for the money. She was in love with the man that she knew as Jordan. He was handsome. He was sweet. He was eight years her senior. He was a manipulative fucking psychopath, but she didn't know that yet. And why couldn't he just use his own bank account to cash and deposit checks? He told Selena that he was set to inherit a large amount of money, over $100,000, and that he didn't want his ex-wife to find out about it or have access to it. So by funneling the money through Selena, it wouldn't be on the radar of Jordan's ex or her lawyer. To Selena, this made sense, at least at first. But even if it didn't, friends say that she probably wouldn't have cared. She would have done anything for Jordan Taylor. It was Taylor Helzer she needed to worry about. On August 7, 2000, a man jet skiing on the Mokalumni River near Sacramento spotted a gym bag floating in the river. He picked it up, took it to shore, and unzipped it. I don't... Like, would you guys have unzipped that? I don't know if I would have actually unzipped the bag. I don't know if I would have touched the bag. But it's a conundrum because it's just a bag, right, in the water. Do you call 911 and say, hey, there's a bag in the water and it's just somebody's snacks for their day of kayaking that they let go of? Or do you open it and risk scarring yourself for life like this man did? Because he opened it and I'm pretty sure he still regrets that to this day. 
The bag was full of rotting body parts from multiple bodies. Police zip-zap-zorped to the scene, uh, conducted a search, and they recovered a total of nine duffel bags filled with body parts. In the bags, all mixed together, so it wasn't this person in this bag and this person in this bag. It was just all mixed up. Um, there were the remains of three people, Selena Bishop and missing local couple Ivan and Annette Steinman. Confused yet? Uh, let's just back up a little bit to a very important day in this story. On July 26, 2000, Taylor Helzer turned 30 years old. The following Sunday, July 30th, the Children of Thunder woke up, said a prayer, and activated Operation Brazil. Taylor and his brother Justin went to the home of Ivan and Annette Steinman, who lived just a few miles away, also in Concord, which all of these towns that I'm mentioning here, Concord, Whitaker, it's not Whitaker, I keep saying it wrong, it's Woodacre, but it's one word, and when I say it fast, it sounds like Whitaker. I don't know how to fix it, guys. I'm from Michigan. Uh, Walnut Creek, uh, a few more that are coming up. All of these cities that I'm talking about, they're all kind of right in the Sacramento area. Ivan was 85 and Annette was 78. They were preparing to celebrate their 55th wedding anniversary. They had both retired from Chevron and they had two adult daughters. They knew Taylor Helzer because he'd been their stockbroker and had become something of a friend, going on outings with them from time to time even. As their financial advisor, Taylor knew exactly how much money they had in the bank and knew that they were just the ones to help him fund Operation Brazil. A neighbor reported seeing two young men in suits and ponytails standing on the Steinman's front porch that day. The neighbor assumed that the men were probably just Mormons spreading the good word, and the Steinmans didn't seem at all distressed, so they went about their business. Later that evening, the Steinman's daughter Nancy called to check in. Her mother answered the phone and told her that she couldn't talk because they had visitors. Nancy later said that her mother sounded impatient but not upset. The elderly couple would not be heard from again. The Children of Thunder kidnapped them using the Steinman's own minivan, took them to the Helzer home, drugged them repeatedly using Rehypnol, which is the date rape drug, and tortured them for days while forcing them to make phone calls to banks and financial advisors to liquidate their assets. On July 31st, a strange scene unfolded at the Washington Mutual Bank in Petaluma. And quick shout out here to all of my fellow murderinos who recognize that name, Petaluma is the hometown of the fabulous Karen Kilgariff of My Favorite Murder, and I was really excited when I saw Petaluma in a story. Anyway, um, on a hot summer day, so it's July 31st, it's summer, it's hot, a heavyset woman in a wheelchair wearing a cowboy hat, driving gloves, and a bright lime green outfit. We're talking long pants, long sleeves, all of it bright ass lime green, rolled her way into the bank with a $10,000 check made out from Annette Steinman to Ivan Steinman and deposited it into the Steinman's joint account. It was believed that this was a test run for what was to come. The following day on August 1st, the same woman appeared in the same ridiculous outfit at a bank in Walnut Creek, about an hour east of Petaluma. She asked for the bank manager identified herself as Jackie, and deposited two checks into the account of Selena Bishop, 
one for $33,000 signed by Ivan Steinman and one for $67,000 signed by Annette Steinman. Jackie told the bank manager that Selena was the Steinman's granddaughter and they had given her the money because she needed open heart surgery and didn't have insurance. So they were just going to pay cash for it. Okay. Uh, The bank manager was understandably very suspicious. And so she told Jackie that she would not make the funds available until she was able to verbally confirm with the Steinman's that they'd written the checks. She placed a call to the Steinman's home while Jackie sat in her office and waited, but of course she got the machine. The manager told Jackie that the funds would remain on hold until she could reach the Steinman's, and so Jackie rolled herself right on out of the bank. Jackie, of course, every time I say Jackie, I'm doing air quotes, which you guys obviously can't see, but just know that I'm doing them. Uh, Jackie was Don Godman. Taylor Helzer had sent her to the bank in the peculiar lime green outfit because he thought that the more she stood out, the less anyone would remember her. So if that right there doesn't speak to how insane he actually was, I don't know what will. Uh, When Don returned home and told Taylor what happened at the bank, he realized the fatal flaw in his plan. Because once the Steinmans had written out the checks to Selena Bishop, he'd killed them. He'd dragged them, beaten, stabbed, and still drugged, into his bathroom, where he slit Annette's throat and bashed Ivan's head against the floor until he stopped breathing. The next day, Taylor and his disciples used a power saw to dismember the bodies, then stuffed the remains into duffel bags. The trio then got on their knees to pray over the body parts and thanked the Steinmans for sacrificing themselves for the greater cause gross and awful and fuck you guys. So the Steinmans weren't going to be having any conversation with the bank manager to authorize the checks. And the bank manager was surely going to remember the lady in the lime green pantsuit now. The plan was a bust and Taylor knew it. He went into panic mode. That night, he and Selena got into an argument about the shady bank account that she'd opened for him. She wrote in her diary later that evening that she did not want to be involved in his big plan, and hopefully it's really all taken care of now. How much Selena actually knew about Helzer's plan remains a mystery, but, I mean, she didn't even know his real name, so I'd like to think that she was in the dark about his true intentions and not a part of it, which some people do allege that that was the case. On August 2nd, the day after the Steinmans were murdered and the unsuccessful bank transaction went down, Selena Bishop and Jordan Taylor were seen together at a brewery a brewery in Berkeley. I had to quit talking so fast. Selena told friends that Jordan was taking her to Yosemite for a long weekend. They left the bar together that night and went back to Jordan's place, where he offered to give Selena a massage. While she was lying face down on the floor, Justin entered the room and bludgeoned her with a hammer. When that didn't kill her, Taylor dragged her to the bathroom, grabbed her by the hair, pulled her head back, and slit her throat. As Selena was being murdered, her mother, Jenny Villarin, who loved her daughter more than life, was closing up shop at the paper mill saloon for the night. Selena's body was dismembered and tossed into the duffel bags with the Steinman's remains. Taylor attempted to feed the body parts to several Rottweilers he'd adopted for that very purpose, but that 
didn't work, according to reports. And I don't even want to know what that means, so I didn't look into that particular piece of the story any further. He did, however, remove a patch of skin from Selena's shoulder, where she had a large, identifiable tattoo, and he fed that to one of the dogs. Fucking gross. While Justin and Don were tasked with cleaning up the gruesome crime scene, Taylor sat quietly and meditated, and he remembered something. There was still something tying him to Selena Bishop. He'd met her mother. So in the early morning hours of August 3rd, Taylor went to Selena's apartment where he knew her mother was staying. He had a key that Selena had given him, so he didn't even have to knock. Now, by this point, Taylor, who was a huge fucking narcissist to begin with, had already killed three people with his bare hands, so he was feeling especially godlike when he went after 45-year-old Jenny Villarin. He, on purpose, so this was not like a, an observation after the fact or a coincidence, this was completely intentional. He dressed himself like Neo from The Matrix, with the long black trench coat, slicked back hair, sunglasses, gun tucked into the inside pocket of the coat, and he entered the apartment silently and approached the bed. He was surprised to find that Jenny was not alone. Sleeping beside her was her 54-year-old boyfriend, Jim Gamble. But Taylor wasn't concerned in the least about collateral damage, which he'd already made very fucking clear. Uh, so in full-on theatrics, he whipped the gun out from inside his trench coat and began firing, reenacting an action scene from The Matrix. He shot both Jenny and Jim several times. And just to make sure that I am setting this scene properly, he went into that apartment alone. There was nobody with him. And the people he was there to kill were in bed asleep. So literally no one saw his weird Matrix reenactment. He did that all for his own benefit. Jenny Villarin's neighbors heard the gunfire and several calls were placed to 911 just after 5 a.m. The Whitaker community was stunned by the double homicide. There had not been a murder in town in almost 15 years. Since the apartment Jenny and Jim were murdered in was actually in Selena's name, police began trying to contact her, but obviously they were unable to locate her. So I guess if there's any silver lining in all of this, which I mean, really there's not because it's all terrible, um, it would be that Selena's mom died before she could find out the gruesome, horrible, violent way that her daughter was murdered. So she didn't have to go through any of that. And Selena was already gone by the time her mother was killed, so she didn't have to go through that pain either. Silver lining, no, that's probably not the right term for it, but I, I hope that their families at least took a little bit of comfort in, you know, they had to go through the pain of losing both of them, but Jenny never lost Selena, and Selena never lost Jenny. While police were still processing the crime scene in Whitaker, a 911 call was made to police in Concord about an hour away. It was Nancy Hall, the daughter of Ivan and Annette Steinman. She'd been unable to reach her parents for several days, so she'd gone to their home to check on them and found an upsetting scene. There were newspapers piled up on the front porch, their van was missing, and tucked between the cushions of the couch, she'd found her father's wristwatch, which he never took off. Some of the bands on the watch were bent as if it had been ripped from his arm. A little while later, another call was placed to 911. Selena's co-workers at the Two Bird Cafe called to report her missing when she didn't show up for her shift that day. Finding Selena Bishop became priority number one. 
She was either in grave danger or had something to do with her mother's murder. Police weren't sure which. They questioned Selena's family and friends. Everyone mentioned her mysterious boyfriend, Jordan Taylor, but no one knew anything at all about him. Not an address, not a phone number, not what he looked like. Selena had told a couple friends that Jordan lived with his brother, Justin, in the East Bay area, but that was of little to no help. Um, I mean, hey, oh yeah, Justin in the East Bay? I'm sure there was only one of those. But in going through Selena's personal effects at work, police did find one clue. She had left her pager. So they looked at the long log of incoming pages and found that many of them were from numbers registered to a Justin Helzer and a Taylor Helzer. Um, the Helzers were brothers who lived in the East Bay area. What's more, a background check revealed that Justin Helzer had a gun registered in his name, a 9mm Beretta, the same type of gun that had been used to kill Jenny Villarin and Jim Gamble. So police quickly zeroed in on the brothers. Thank God. They were able to obtain a photo of Taylor Hauser, and Selena's co-workers positively ID'd him as her boyfriend, Jordan Taylor. Meanwhile, on August 6th, the minivan belonging to Ivan and Annette Steinman, who were still missing, was found in a rough Oakland neighborhood, windows down, rap music blaring. But the Steinmans were still nowhere to be found. The morning of August 7th, police held a news conference asking for assistance locating the Steinmans. Walnut Creek Bank manager Vicki Sexton caught the news broadcast as she was getting ready for work. Ivan and Annette Steinman. The customers she'd been trying to get a hold of all week regarding that $100,000 in checks that they'd written to Selena Bishop. She called the police immediately to report the strange encounter with the woman in lying green. It didn't take police long to discover that Selena Bishop was also missing. Was it all connected? The murders of Jenny Villarin and Jim Gamble and the disappearances of Selena Bishop and the Steinmans? Police suspected it was, but they would soon have their answer, because just a few hours later, that poor, poor jet skier would discover the first of many bags that contained the remains of Selena and the Steinmans. August 7th was a busy day because it was also the day that police obtained a search warrant for Justin Helzer's gun, which allowed for a SWAT team to storm the Helzer home. Taylor, Justin, and Dawn were all home at the time. Police detained the three while they searched the home. They found rope, duct tape, leg irons, a taser, ruhypnol, and other drugs. Documents that belonged to the Steinmans, a sticky note with Selena's work and pager numbers written down, and wet carpet in one of the rooms with fans airing it out and light red stains still showing through. Most peculiar of all, the bathroom was brand new with freshly laid vinyl flooring. The entire room was bright white and clean, while the rest of the house was a fucking hoarder's nest. It was disgusting, uh, without so much as even a place to sit down. A luminol test was done, which turned up blood evidence all over the house, but no gun. Did they really need the gun at this point, though? I mean, they had a fucking lot. While the police were gathering up more evidence than they'd ever hoped to find during this raid, Taylor took the fuck off. Wearing nothing but boxer shorts, he ran out of the house, ran like the wind, jumping fences and crisscrossing yards. And he actually got away. 
Uh, he broke into a neighbor's house and he held her at knife point while he made her help him come up with an impromptu disguise. He used kitchen shears to chop off his long hair and he had made her give him clothes and shoes to change into. Well, not change into, to put on. He wasn't wearing anything. It was all for naught, however, because he barely made it out of the backyard before he was cornered by police and they weren't letting him get away this time. Glenn Taylor Helzer, age 30, Justin Helzer, age 28, and Dawn Godman, age 26, were all arrested and charged with the murders of Selena Bishop and Annette and Ivan Steinman. They were also the only suspects in the murders of Jenny Villarin and Jim Gamble, but unless police found the gun used to kill the couple, they wouldn't be able to press charges because there was no other evidence there. Enter Deborah McClanahan, a 30-year-old Wiccan Mormon. Pause. Can you be both? Can you be a Wiccan and a Mormon? I didn't think that was a thing, but she was. Um, she was a friend of the Helsers, and she was what you might call a casual member of the Children of Thunder. She knew about some things, like the plan to slay Satan and rule the world, but she didn't know about the specifics on how it was all supposed to happen, and she wasn't trusted with things like murdering and laundering money. She had, at one point, offered to do porn to help raise money for the cause. So I guess she was pretty committed, um, but, and they did trust her enough to ask her to hold a safe for them, which she assumed contained drugs. When she saw on the news that they'd been arrested for three murders, she promptly called the police and turned the safe over. And inside was every missing piece of the puzzle authorities could ever ask for. The safe contained the Steinman's wallets and checkbooks, Selena's driver's license, and the gun used to kill Jenny and Jim. The Children of Thunder all pled innocent, initially. Dawn Godman was so brainwashed, she was convinced that Taylor Helzer, her savior, was going to make it all go away. They literally had to call in a cult deprogrammer to fix her. Now, I didn't know that was a thing, but now I want to talk to one. Does anybody know a cult deprogrammer? Are you a cult deprogrammer? Seriously, I want to talk to one. Once Dawn was snapped back to reality, oh, there goes gravity, she was suicidal. She had to come to terms with the fact that she'd actually helped murder five people for money, not because it was going to help save the world. She was offered a plea deal that took the death penalty off the table if she agreed to testify against Taylor and Justin, and she took it. She was sentenced to 38 years to life, and she will be eligible for parole in 2032 when she is 58 years old. The trial of Taylor and Justin Helzer was scheduled to begin on March 6, 2004. In a move that shocked officials, Taylor Helzer pled guilty to all charges just before the trial began. Justin Helzer pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And I want to talk about that for a minute because I'm seeing a lot of talk about what bullshit the insanity defense is these days, especially with the Mark Latunsky, Kevin Bacon case that we've got going on here at home in Michigan right now. It's not bullshit, guys. Not always. Um, sometimes it is, but more often than not, it's genuinely insane people doing these insane things. A lot of the time, like in the Mark Latunsky case, there can be years of documented mental illness on record. 
And a lot of the time, there's a lifetime of undiagnosed mental illness that's only discovered once a person is behind bars for doing this super fucked up thing. And so it's just now being evaluated and it's all just now coming to light. And yes, sometimes um, people do try to use an insanity defense as a get out of jail free card, but it's not that. Um, A person can be a violent criminal that never deserves to see freedom again, but also still have a valid insanity defense claim. A not guilty by reason of insanity verdict can still land a person in a government-run facility for life. Just like someone being found incompetent to stand trial can actually result in a longer sentence overall because they are held and they are treated and they are evaluated regularly until they are competent to stand trial. And then they get sentenced for whatever their crime was so that the sentence doesn't even start until they're competent to stand trial and go through the trial and are sentenced. Um, And if they're never found competent to stand trial, then they never get out. Uh, They'll remain in a mental facility. So let's just kind of keep that in mind, if you guys don't mind, moving forward, um, that uh, an insanity defense doesn't mean freedom, and being found incompetent to stand trial doesn't mean freedom, and more often than not, uh, those are actual valid situations that many um, prisoners face. Anyway, okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. Um, Back to Justin Hauser, because we never really talked about Justin a whole lot. Was he truly insane? I think he might have been. He'd been brainwashed from birth. His parents, his grandparents, the church, everyone always told him that Taylor was special, anointed by God, that he had to follow his brother, obey his brother, do everything his brother said. Uh, Him growing up doesn't make that go away. Him turning 18 doesn't magically break that spell and turn him into a free thinker. Uh, According to Carrie Furman, who was Taylor Helzer's ex, uh, the one that had just barely escaped becoming a member of the Children of Thunder and then went on to model for Playboy. Um, According to her, Justin was a gentle soul who only ate organic food and refused to so much as kill an insect. And... She didn't know him way before. She literally got out months before the whole Children of Thunder thing came to be. So he served in the Army National Guard when he was young, and he went on to become a cable installer who was well-liked by his co-workers and never missed a day of work. What sort of man might he have turned out to be if he hadn't been raised from birth to obey the every whim of his psychotic older brother? It's worth considering... I think, uh, but the jury didn't consider it, and he was found guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. On March 11, 2005, the Helzer brothers were both sentenced to death. Justin's deprogramming took longer than Don Godman's had, but eventually he, too, had to face the fact that he'd murdered and dismembered human beings for no reason other than his brother's psychopathy and greed. In 2010, Justin Helzer attempted to commit suicide by stabbing himself in the eye with a pen. I am not sure why he thought that would work, um, but it did render him blind. And on April 14th, 2013, Justin was found hanging from a bedsheet in his San Quentin cell, and he was pronounced dead by prison officials. So he died awaiting the death penalty. Uh, Taylor Helzer remains on death row at San Quentin, and he is currently 49 years old. 
My sources for this episode, I had a lot of them because this story only has a loose connection to Michigan. Still an interesting one, but a loose one. It took place in California, and California is where all the good crime stories go down and get covered. So this was covered on an episode of People Magazine Investigates, Season 3, Episode 11, The Children of Thunder, which that's actually the one that I saw or kind of watched and first heard about this case on. There was also an episode of True Crime with Aphrodite Jones. That was season two, episode nine, also also called The <laughs> Children of Thunder. Um, a book called The False Prophet, Conspiracy, Extortion, and Murder in the Name of God by Claire Booth. Uh, Wikipedia, Find a Grave, and Murderpedia, my go-tos. ElvinBishopMusic.com. An article for The Independent written by Andrew Gumbel on June 15th, 2004. An article for the Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Times, written by John Gliana and Richard Chan on August 11th, 2000. An article by the Associated Press for the Berkeley Daily Planet written on September 29th, 2000. An article written for the San Francisco Gate by Peter Fimright and Charlie Goodyear on August 11th, 2000. And that is the insane story of the Children of Thunder, whose psychotic leader was born right here in my hometown of Lansing, Michigan. All right, time for me to answer a question from a listener. And this one comes from Brianna. Is it Brianna or Brianna? You'll have to tell me because I'm unsure. But now I've said it both ways, so even if I'm wrong, I'm also right, which that's good. So I picked this question because I thought it was appropriate for today's episode. Brianna, Brianna, Brianna's question is, have you ever written to a death row inmate? Would you? And who would you choose? The answer is no, no, and hell no. Um, <laughs> no, I have not written to an inmate. I wouldn't. So nobody there for me to choose. I think I told you guys about, maybe I haven't. I think I have. Um, my oldest son, when he was in high school, he took a psychology class and they did this project. I'm not sure what the parameters of the project were, whether they had to write to a celebrity or whether they were specifically supposed to write to a prisoner. I fucking hope not. But one of, regardless, one of the girls wrote a letter to Charles Manson and he actually wrote her back. And many of the kids wound up with a copy of the letter. My son was one of them. He had a photocopy of the letter. He brought it home. And just having a photocopy of a letter that Charles Manson wrote made me feel so gross. I could like... I could feel the evil emanating off of it. I just felt like it opened this door that I want, I just want no part of. I want no part of anything like that. Um, maybe my one exception to that rule would be if I thought the person might be innocent, if there was a question of their innocence and I wanted to ask them some questions or get their take on something for maybe a story I was working on, I might consider that. But overall, the whole writing to prisoners is not a practice that I recommend unless you have, you know, a personal reason to reach out, like a connection to the case. But, you know, 
to each his own. I know people do it. And if it's something that any of you ever feel compelled to do, please just always, always use a P.O. box. In the world, in the world, in the words of Charles Manson himself from that aforementioned letter that he sent back to a classmate of my son's, uh, he wrote in the margins of the letter, don't ever write a prisoner and use your home address. Solid advice, you crazy fuck. How long can I talk your guys' ears off today? I've got just a few more things. Just a few. Um, I do need to take a moment to thank everyone who's left a review on Apple Podcasts or Facebook over the past month. So from Apple Podcasts, there is J3NVU, Scally Pally. Scally Pally. It's cute. I like it. Uh, Pug Mom Amy. BDD's mom, Ob517, Angelique627. Um, and then from Facebook, there's Carrie Hummel, Isaac Francisco, Mary Wilson, Christine Naziatka Ward, probably said that wrong, Melissa Karazim, Amber Santana, Kelsey Simmons, Adriana Suero, probably said that wrong, Aubrey Anderson. And then I'm definitely saying this one wrong. Um, Christy Hoxwell Asuaja. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry because I know I said that wrong. Um, and then Justin Anderson. So thank you guys so much for just taking a few minutes to leave a review, whether it was on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. It means a lot. I love reading the words of encouragement. Uh, and then the reviews on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts actually assist with rankings and things like that. So I appreciate it. What else do I have today? Oh, the Festival of Oddities. Uh, that is, by the time you guys hear this episode, that's going to be less than six months away, and I am freaking out. Um, the Festival of Oddities will be in Charlotte at the car- at the cart house. At the Courthouse Square Museum on September 5th. That is Labor Day weekend. Don't We don't need to be... Going away for Labor Day weekend. We've got cool shit going on right here at home, like the festival. So we are still looking for uh, vendors and food trucks and performers, sideshow performers. We'll have a free stage outdoors for performers. We're looking for, you know, fire breathers and stilt walkers and things like that. So if you know anybody that you think would be a good fit to participate in the festival in any way, please have them get a hold of me and, um, yeah, come, it's going to be a fucking blast. So what else? Tours. I need to make better notes, man. This is all just a bunch of chicken scratch here. So Demented Mitten Tours back this month, the new season, season five starts here in March as of the time of this recording, the March tour is sold out, but there are still tickets for all of the other tours. So there's one in April, one in May, one in June, one in July, and then August we start the busy season. So get those tickets while you can. Just go to DementedMittenTours.com, click on Schedule, and um, doing ticketing a little different this year. So you just click on the date you want, and it'll take you right to the, to the event page to purchase the tickets that way. <sighs> There's more. What more? 
uh, top of the town. So those of you local here to the Lansing or mid-Michigan area, the City Pulse newspaper and Fox 47 News do a contest every year called the Top of the Town. And there are a few categories that I would like you guys to focus on if you're going to vote. But really, you know, go through them all. This is where you choose your favorite restaurants and your favorite artists. There's a lot of fun categories, a lot of silly categories, but it's just a really, a really great way to acknowledge that there are cool people in this community doing some cool things. And I'm always so excited when I get to look at the list and see all of the people that I know on it, um, because it reminds me that I've got a lot of really cool, talented friends. But um, if you have a minute and if you're going to to check it out, peruse the list, it's just citypulse.com or just Google City Pulse Top of the Town. Um, and under Best Hangouts, uh, Demented Mitten Tours is nominated for the Best Haunted Attraction. Under the Best Whatever category, Demented Mitten Tours is also nominated for the Best Outdoor Adventure. And under the Best Whatever category, there's also a little... A little write-in for um, best local podcast. So if So Dead's your favorite, you might want to consider nominating. And that's all. That's all I'm going to say. I feel super weird doing that kind of stuff, but somebody's got to do it, right? And that's it. Thank you guys for coming to my Dead Talk. Uh, Shout out to my friend Gretchen for coming up with that one, which I love. Gretchen is the coolest. Um, she is someone that I have known since middle school, I think. She is just a skosh younger than me. If you wonder what a skosh is, it's like a year-ish. And we weren't, you know, we weren't one-on-one friends, but we ran in adjacent circles. We worked on the school paper together, I'm pretty sure. But now, as old ladies, I follow her on social media. And sometimes I just think to myself, like... Why weren't we better friends growing up? Because she is fucking hilarious and she's super into true crime and she understands all of my creepy murder references. Anyway, she is going through something super tough right now and she posted about it recently, but she had to add a bit of humor to a very serious statement. And that is something that I can absolutely relate to because I'm the, I'm the same way. I do that all the time to the point that I think I offend people with my need to make something that's very unfunny funny, but hey, that's me. So yeah, that was, that was the thing. She said, thank you for coming to my dead talk. And I am always, even in emails to my boss, when I go on a big tangent, I will end it with thank you for coming to my TED talk. And so the fact that I never thought to switch it to dead talk when I talk about death all the time is unacceptable. But Gretchen told me to use it on the podcast. So I did. I am. I will. I'm gonna. Um, And every time I say it, I want you guys to just give Gretchen a big mental high five because she deserves it because she's awesome. Lastly, because I'm running out of voice and you guys are probably running out of patience. um, I just want to thank you guys so much for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at Sodad Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com slash Podcast. And be sure to visit SoDeadPodcast.com for all your SoDead merch. 
Um, as always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to sodadpodcast at gmail.com or contact me on social media. A new episode of So Dead is coming your way soon. So <laughs> I said that weird. Let's do that again. Uh, a new episode of So Dead is coming your way soon. So until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. Mm-hmm.